KHP, Patreon exclusive, 003, Goblin. The following tale is taken from excerpts of a journal that was found amongst belongings after the passing of a man near Easton, Pennsylvania. The timeline of the man whose possessions contained the journal do not line up with the events outlined within. The journal seemed to belong to a monk. The monk, who is not named or identified in the journal, seems to have been a member of a monastic mission house just outside of Easton. His account seems to take place in the early to mid-1800s, by all records found. The mission house and the campus are considered the same area. A large house fitted with many bedrooms on the second floor, with a large living quarter below, was where the monks resided and slept. The campus, which was also the yard of the house, was surrounded by a small wall, roughly six feet tall and made of stone, held together by mortar. A chapel was also inside of the campus walls. Housed within a small building were pews, enough for the entire brotherhood and then some citizens of Easton. Entry 1 Many were aware that Brother Hahn was committing nefarious deeds in the name of the Lord. Our problem was that nobody had actually bore witness to these atrocities for us to bring proof. Our mission house stood an hour's travel by foot outside of Easton, Pennsylvania. The folks of Easton would travel to our mission to confess their sins to us. The town had its own church, but it was evangelical and only taught about spreading the gospel, not of confessing your sins for repentance. Word reached us by gossip and confessional that Brother Han was listening to those at confessional and using those sins as blackmail against the repenter. He coerced those that repented to give him valuable possessions, money, and other material wealth that we had no need for in the mission house. The townsfolk sustained us with food and donations, and we offered them a way to repent to the Lord. Four of us witnessed Brother Han's ultimate sin after a time. A small group of us were traveling to the meditation clearing on the mountain trail above the mission house when we heard a commotion off the walking path to our right. Upon moving closer, we saw Brother Han standing over Mrs. Reich, an elderly woman from in town that had arrived for confessional only hours earlier. She was a modest woman. Her husband made a living at the lumber mills, and she was known for bringing baked goods with her each time she journeyed to our mission. Brother Han stood over Mrs. Reich, covered in smatterings of blood, holding a rock in his palm. Mrs. Reich lay sprawled on the ground, a growing pool of blood around her deformed head. We rushed to Brother Han and pulled him away from the victim. As we did so, he was shouting blasphemies at the woman and nearly foaming at the mouth with anger. 
He claimed that it was her fault she wasn't ashamed of her sins. She deserved to be sent to the depths of hell for not being ashamed. Han was rambling strings of nonsense, hurling insults and damning God, all unforgivable acts in the eyes of our brotherhood. We restrained Brother Han and sent Brother Curtis, one of our younger members, to ride a horse that we possessed into town to alert the sheriff of the events that had transpired. We left Brother Gregory and Brother Malinich to cover the corpse with as much respect as possible and to watch over the corpse of Mrs. Reich until our return. Entry 2 The sheriff arrived with Brother Curtis an hour later. The other members and I escorted the sheriff to the spot where Mrs. Reich lay, guarded by our two sentries. Brother Hahn was brought along. The blood had dried on his hands and clothing by this point, giving him the appearance of a native savage preparing for war. A trial was not needed, as the sheriff had seen enough. Hahn was taken to the jail in Easton, forced to walk behind the sheriff's horse at an uncomfortable pace. The hanging was to take place the next evening. Townsfolk and travelers came to gawk at Brother Han, who was being described as the savage monk, the dark monk, and other iterations of these phrases. Some whispered that he worshipped Lucifer himself, with these rumors swirling. Many of us in the mission discussed the implications of the town's outlook on our group as a whole. We could be branded satanic sympathizers, or worse, worshippers ourselves. We made note to put out a statement to the good people of Easton directly after the hanging was complete, before the crowd dispersed. The evening of the hanging arrived, and all of the members of the Mission Brotherhood made the journey to watch Han be executed. Scores of townsfolk surrounded the large oak tree, whose leaves had changed color and had begun to fall. A rope was already draped, and a noose had already been sized. The congregation went silent as one of the sheriff's men stepped through the crowd to announce the sheriff, Han, and Han's crimes. An opening formed as they approached, one that brought to mind Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. Down the newly formed aisle came Han, shackled, still in his bloody robes, a portrait of proof for the crime committed. I felt pity on Han. Pity that he would soon feel the wrath of God against him. Pity that he knew everyone that was present in his life, in some way, hated him for betraying the townsfolk and killing one of their own. For breaking the oaths and laws of our brotherhood and tarnishing our name among the good people of Easton. For breaking the oaths and laws of our brotherhood and tarnishing our name among the people of Easton. Among these feelings, a seething rage from all of us in the group for not showing a single ounce of remorse for his crimes. Boos, hisses, and curses were hurled at Brother Han. People near the aisle reached out in attempts to strike him, to throw things at him. Some of the sheriff's men stepped in to intervene, but still allowed a few hearty strikes to land. 
their bias towards the accused, not unnoticed or unappreciated by the crowd. Han stepped onto the wooden stool. Han stepped onto the stool that sat beneath the noose that would soon suffocate him. Gallows were for those meant to have a quick death. The stool was a slow and excruciating form of punishment. The executioner placed the rope around him slowly, building a suspense and preparing the crowd for the show that was about to occur. An eye for an eye, in perfect accordance with the good book as we were taught and continue to teach. One of ours has taken the life of one of theirs, and debts must be repaid. The sheriff restated the crimes and the punishment, and asked if Han had any last words. He only looked at the small congregation of those he once called brothers and spat towards us. The thick glob of saliva made it nary a quarter of the distance between us. This distasteful action prompted audible gasps and shouts from the crowd. As they gasped, the sheriff kicked out the stool that Han was balanced upon, causing him to fall a few inches as the rope tightened. The gasps and shouts turned to cheers, delighted that this monster was dying a slow death before their eyes. Han flailed and spun in the air for nearly three minutes before his body went limp, twitching of his fingers and a small movement of his mouth were the last things seen. His face now turned a violet color, his eyes dark red and bulging from their sockets. The executioner let him hang another minute to ensure his death before he lowered Han from the limb that held him up, letting his body fall with a sickening thud. Some of the crowd began to disperse. Others walked towards the body to get a better look of the aftermath. I prepared to call attention to our group, to denounce Han's actions and attempt to garner good favor with the townsfolk again. As I and some of the other members began to move, there was a shout of fear. Men fell on their rumps and skittered back like crabs. The crowd congregated again around the body of Han, which had begun twitching with signs of life. The townsfolk, members of the Brotherhood, and the sheriff with his men looked on in terror as the body of Han began transforming before them. His skin began to change colors, turning from a tanned pigment to an inky black, blacker than any skin I have ever seen on a human. The skin then began to lighten, turning from a black to a dark green. Folks began shouting of devil magic, dark arts, and other sayings. Some were fleeing, not wishing to be anywhere near the vicinity of the thing that changed before us. Han's arms shortened and grew bulkier, more muscular. His legs, too, became shorter and thicker. His head then began to change, growing wider. Pointed ears sprouted, and his face became gaunt and bony. His bloody robe now looked far too large for him. His leather shoes had ripped from his feet, increasing in size. An older man that bravely remained shouted, It's a damned goblin! And more folks ran for their homes, for their lives. The creature that once used to be Han 
opened its eyes. Yellow and piercing, it smiled, showing rotting, sharp and yellowed teeth. A stench then began emanating from the beast, causing many that remained to gag and others to vomit. It clenched its hand, gnarled fingers with long nails protruding from the ends. It wiggled a foot before lurching upright, causing the sheriff and others to draw their weapons. But the creature was too fast. Before anyone possessing a firearm could make a motion to shoot, the goblin stood and began running. A blur of fluttering bloody robes and green skin. Many ran from it, getting out of its way as it barreled through the crowd. The creature ran out of town and out of our sight. We arrived at the mission house after dusk. The commotion of the transformation caused quite a stir in the town, and many folks came to us demanding answers. We were unable to provide them acceptable answers, and instead denounced Han and the deeds he committed in secret, out of sight of us, but not out of the sight of God. The sheriff and his men rode towards the goblin's last known path, to kill or capture it after it fled. They arrived at the mission house for the night, and we gladly allowed them to shelter in the spare dormitory rooms. Entry 3 It has been a fortnight since Han's hanging. I am attempting to refrain from calling him brother, as he has lost this title. Rarely has anyone uttered word of him since the events that transpired that day. Few townsfolk have arrived to inquire our condition. It was as I and the others had feared. Only three members of Easton ventured into our small campus, asking for forgiveness. Some of us speculated that seeing the transformation may have driven more to God, seeing it as a sign to repent. They were wrong. The prior kindheartedness of the people of Easton greatly improved our stocks of food for the winter prior to Han's transgressions. We will have enough to weather the storms and the longevity of the cold months, but I fear what the next year may hold. Entry 4 An unknown time since the previous entry. Brother Malinich has not returned from his travels on the mountainside. We are preparing a search party to look for him. Malinich was found only a few hundred yards from the campus. The search party found him hanging in a tree, as if deliberately placed there. Once we were able to retrieve his body, we saw the extent of damage done to him. His throat had been torn out, and he had been heavily eviscerated. He was missing part of an arm, a foot, and wore large wounds, that which seemed to be from an animal. Chunks of his flesh were missing in these wounds. Blood soaked his clothing and the bark of the tree he was found in, and large claw marks were found on the trees in the area. I have heard of jaguars in jungles of far eastern lands consuming their prey in trees overhead, but we have no such animal here. A mountain lion has not been documented partaking in meals in such a manner. We have advised everyone to remain within sight of the walls of the campus and mission house when doing their daily business. Trips on the mountain trail are now forbidden.
Entry 5 I have begun hearing whispers from my brothers. Many are claiming to have seen a creature the size of a small bear walking within the woods on the mountainside by the mission house. They said it walked bipedally, like a man crouched and walking slowly, watching them. I fear the goblin has returned to harm us, to enact revenge for alerting the sheriff to his misdeeds. No member is to leave the wall of the campus and are to remain vigilant for anything strange outside of the walls. Entry 6 We were woken tonight by a scream. A quick shout that only lasted a second or two before it was cut short. I, along with three or four others, emerged into the hallway from our bedrooms, our lanterns lighting the halls of the house in a glow that reminded me of dawn. We surveyed our home and found no disturbances within, save for the front doors being left slightly ajar. Leaving the house and entering the campus, it became apparent quite quickly where the scream had originated. On the sidewalk were a few strips of clothing, bloodied and torn. A few drops of blood spattered the stones, still wet. Someone called out that there was more in their direction, a smear of blood showing a trail of something being dragged, led us to what I saw next. It's almost too disgusting to recall, but for the preservation of our records, I shall remember the scene with detail. Clothing, bloody and shredded, was found. Skin, torn and flayed, still stuck to one side of it, sitting in small, unnatural piles, as if sand placed on a beach were globules of red meat, with clumps of hair, scalp, intestines, and pieces of broken bones sat in small piles around the meat. We did a count of those with us, and went inside to count the others. We found that only Brother Richard was unaccounted for. We believed these were his remains. In addition to the blood, clothing, and piled remains, was another fluid, a thick, mucousy yellow fluid. We were unsure if this was the beast's blood or some sort of weapon that it spat to harm its prey. The fluid stank of rotten meat and decay, just as the goblin had after it transformed. We retreated inside and locked the doors, shuttered the windows, and secured the house. Tomorrow, we would post sentries, armed with amulets blessed by the highest priests in the land, and armed with vials of holy water. We would also send Brother Curtis on horseback to get the attention of the sheriff. When we went to our horse's hitching post, we found that our horse had been let loose, and there was no sign of them. We sent Brother Curtis and Brother Gregory off on foot, armed with blessed amulets and prayers from us. Entry 7 Darkness has arrived, and there was no sign of Curtis, Gregory, or the sheriff. We fear that our brothers may have been attacked while on their way to the town. We posted sentries on each side of the campus grounds, armed with torches and blessed amulets. They stood watch over the perimeter and were told not to fight, 
but to retreat into the mission house at the first sign of danger. We attempted to sleep in our beds, windows shuttered and secured. I was awoken out of my light slumber by a frantic knocking at my bedroom door. Groggily, I opened it and saw Brother Simon, wide-eyed and fearful, standing in the hallway with a lantern. Others began opening their doors. He told myself and the others that Brother Silas and Smith, our sentries, were not at their posts. The large group of us opened the doors to the campus grounds and emerged from the mission house. Our lanterns lit our path, showing the dried blood of Brother Richard still smeared on the stones. We went to where Brother Smith was supposed to be, but saw nothing, not a sign of his presence. It was when we turned the corner for Silas's posted spot that we saw what signs of them remained for us. A pool of blood sat on the large slab Silas was to stand watch on. The wooden handle of his pitch-covered torch lie in the pool, still partially burning, reflecting its flames on the sticky liquid. A bloody footprint and the vile-smelling mucus was splattered on the ground. Bloody handprints were painted on the edge of the stone, as if the person that was dragged over it attempted to save themselves one last time. We saw the second burning torch over the wall, illuminating the bodies of Brother Smith and Brother Silas. A dark figure in ripped robes stood over them, its hands raising one of the body's arms up as it took a bite, then reached into the torso. Wet crunching and slurping sounds emerged from the beast, and over it all, moanings of pleasure from the beast. A gasp escaped one of us as we gazed upon this horrid scene. The beast froze and went rigid, turning slowly to look at us. Its eyes seemed to glow brightly in the faint torchlight. We quickly retreated back to the mission house as we heard the beast struggle to get up. We barred the door with a large oaken board. Members went around the house, checking all of the shutters were secured and the doors were locked. We gathered in the common rooms of the first floor. We were all visibly frightened and disgusted. Brother Simon shouted that we needed to leave at first light or we were all going to be dead soon. Beds, chairs, and anything we could find we used to barricade the hallways that led to the front foyer of our room. We held our few belongings in the foyer with us, in case we needed to abandon the house quickly. We sat stationary. Small conversations occurred, and others cried or prayed, knowing that at least four had died to this beast conjured by Lucifer himself. We stood no chance against it. The amulets and the holy water had no effect as it had consumed both that were these blessed objects. We agreed to take Brother Simon's advice of abandoning the mission and retreating to Easton at dawn. It must have been nearly 5 a.m., judging by the amount of firewood we put on and the amount of oil burned by our lanterns. The sunrise was only minutes away. We heard it then, during a break in conversation, a light tapping on the front door, like a small child 
curiously making a sound. We watched the door, waiting for something to happen. Then it stopped. Bang! Something slammed up against the shutter in the foyer. Bang! The other shutter across the room. Then we heard a snicker, something raspy and high-pitched, yet gravelly and almost broken. A thud, and then another. We realized the goblin was climbing the wall of the house. We heard its claws slip on the terracotta shingles, trying to get a foothold. Some of the shingles fell and shattered, causing us to jump at the noise. A crash, then another snicker that echoed through the hallways thumping and banging on the second-story shutters. Our worst fears became realized when the sound of splintering wood reverberated down an upstairs hallway to us. We began to panic, grabbing at the oaken wood that held our front door closed and throwing things at the pile of debris in the stairwell that led to the second-floor hallway. We heard the goblin breaking through the door of the room he had entered through, and his heavy footfalls could be heard on the carpeted hallway. The goblin crashed into the beds and the chairs on the stairs, knocking them to the ground. We took the opportunity to escape, grabbing our things and running while the goblin was inside and occupied. As we ran from our home, we heard a shout. The goblin had broken past the debris and had grabbed Simon by the arm, throwing him to the ground. Simon's screams could be heard, as we made our way out of the campus grounds and down the road. All of us felt sorrow in our hearts. Entry 8 Simon was our unwilling sacrificial lamb, and it saved us all. We arrived in Easton as daylight broke over the foggy autumn mountains. Our brotherhood stepped hastily into town and went directly to the sheriff's home and alerted him to the situation. Curtis nor Gregory ever arrived in town. The townsfolk were hesitant, but after seeing our downtrodden and tired expressions, allowed us to stay in different homes throughout the town. We were eternally grateful. Easton remained my home for many years. Our brotherhood was disbanded and I lost touch with all but two members who took up residence in towns nearby. The mission campus was abandoned and left to decay. The sheriff found the remains of Brother Simon, Brother Richard, Brother Malinich, Brother Gregory, Brother Smith, Brother Curtis, and Brother Silas. Much of what we described with the gore piles was true, but changed, as if the goblin decided to play with the remains after our departure. As I lived in Easton, sightings of a creature were reported in the area. The folks living in town knew what the creature was. Those unfortunate souls seeking refuge from storms, or just a place to sleep without paying by staying in the mission house, would be found torn to bits around the campus and the roads by passers-by the next day. The road past the mission house was well-traveled, and often someone who was expected to arrive never did. The Goblin of Easton 
hides somewhere in those mountains behind the mission. Hunters have taken up arms a few times to try and vanquish the creature that used to be Han. Many have not returned from these excursions. The goblin hides in the thick overgrowth of the campus, or swings from tree to tree like some strange malformed ape, all while waiting for its next victim, waiting for a weary soul to enter its domain and never return. I hope you are enjoying the Halloween specials. Next week will be another free episode, and in two weeks will be the final Halloween special, exclusively for patrons. Thank you for being a patron.